Good morning, everyone. This is a thrilling time for me right now to see that book up there, and I'll tell you briefly how that came to be. But let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We surrender this time to you, Jesus. Would you speak to our hearts this morning? Holy Spirit, bring us breakthroughs. Lord, we want to get the rubble out of the way. We want to hear from you. We want a connection with you, Jesus. That's how we want to live, Lord, and we thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So the, the message this morning is accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, which comes directly out of the serenity prayer. If there's any 12-steppers in here, folks that work the 12 steps, you probably know that prayer also, serenity prayer. But it's, it's, I've been in a 12-step program now for five years. I don't have an addiction to drugs and alcohol. I have brokenness in me, and I'll explain how I got into that ministry. I come to you from Walnut Hill Community Church in Bethel, Connecticut, which is a rather large church. About 2,400 people go there. There's actually four locations. And, um, uh, and so uh, it's a, that church supports you all here. Comes along Pastor Ryan and Sarah. Um, Sarah is my niece. And uh, we recently went to Italy together. There were 19 of us that went there, uh, Pastor Ryan and, and Sarah, and it sounds exotic and exciting, but there are 170 steps to get down to the villa, then 170 steps down to the market. So it was, uh, it was a trip of pain and suffering, but also beautiful views. Um, so it's my pleasure to be here this morning. Um, I currently am serving in my church as the ministry leader uh, for Celebrate Recovery, which is a 12-step program uh, out of Rick Warren's church, Saddleback. It's been out there roughly 30 years in about 34,000 churches. And uh, it is a 12-step program infused with the Beatitudes where Jesus Christ is the higher power. The tagline for Celebrate Recovery is for anyone who has a hurt, habit, or hang-up. So I imagine that's a lot of us here. And, uh, and so part of that program for me and working that um, has been to really uh, gain a huge benefit from the serenity prayer. If any of you know it, it says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. It's an old prayer, but it's a prayer that um, came out of two men who struggled with alcohol, who started uh, AA, and uh, really were godly men. And they understood that, um, that the first step says that I am powerless and areas of my life are unmanageable and that I need help. And that is a beautiful place to get to. We're gonna talk about that in just a little while. I believe it's the same place when Jesus stands up at the Sermon on the Mount and launches his public ministry. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that phrase mean? Because I believe for my life that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven has been my entry into emotional and spiritual maturity and where God wants me to be. 
So I come to you this morning with a brand new book that's out. You're the first stop on my, on my book tour. Um, and uh, I'll tell you how that came about right now. The verse this morning is uh, Philippians 2.13. And it says this, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. For it is God who has at work in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. How many of you really understood that when you surrendered your lives to Jesus Christ that first time, that you were inviting the God of the universe, creator of, of the universe, to live in your life, that the Holy Spirit would inhabit you? That you the, in fact, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6, you've been bought with a price, you are not your own, that God owns you. All of a sudden, you've got this other voice in you. You have this other force within you. You have the God of the universe within you. And, and why I wanted to focus on that is because um, if you've ever seen a tapestry or somebody work on a tapestry, whatever it is, the underside of the tapestry has threads or cords or whatever going in every which way. It makes no sense. But when you turn the tapestry over, it's a beautiful picture of something. And I, I marvel at what God does in our in our lives. He takes an enemy. We have an enemy. Satan. Demons. He takes free will. He takes our brokenness. And yet he's still in charge. He still can weave something out of that. And I'm amazed. When I go, I have three kids that live in Manhattan right now. And when I go down there and see all the people there, I'm like, Lord, how do you do it? Just, I'm a mess. I'm broken. How do you resolve all the messes out there? And of course, that's something that we won't know about until we are with him. But um, I have been on a 15-year cancer journey. This is my 15th year. Uh, just to give you the highlights, I've had 15 surgeries, not including procedures and, and all the stuff that goes along with that. I've been told twice to go home and call hospice. It was done once in 2015 and then in 2017. I've had six re recurrences. I've had five weeks of radiation, chemo rinses. I'm on immunotherapy. I've had over 40 infusions, and I stand before you. So how does that work? Well, well, we'll talk a little bit about that. But for this book, about eight months ago, uh, and you have to understand that um, I was an attorney, practicing attorney, up until two and a half years ago. And the cancer was so bad, it became metastatic with about a 5% chance to, to live. Then my doctor said, go home and, and quit work, go on disability, which I, which I did. And so who would have ever thought that eight months ago, I was at a gala and three people independently came up to me and said, I want to buy your book. And I said, I don't have a book and I don't want a book and I don't feel like working on one. <laughs> and then a local pastor, Spanish-speaking pastor, came up to me and said, God told me to tell you to write a book. That's the God card. And so I went home that night and I said, okay, Lord, if, if you want me to do this, you're, you're weaving the tapestry. I'm going to surrender and trust in you and I'm going to go ahead and launch that book. And so that's what, that's what the result is. It's 147 pages. It goes through not only my cancer journey, which has been long, but also my personal recovery journey. You see, five years ago, uh, in 2014, I was sitting in a therapist's office with a broken marriage and as a broken man and a broken father, really. I had an oldest daughter who went through five to six years of drug addiction, 
alcoholism, overdosed, survived that, and I was feeling rather broken through that whole thing. My wife and I were, were just torn up over that. But I was in this therapist's office, and my marriage was on the rocks. I was struggling with a cancer journey that just wouldn't let up. And I, I was asking the Lord, what's going on? Have you abandoned me? What's happening here? Back in 2005, when I was first diagnosed, um, I had uh, surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. What happened was the cancer first showed up in my bladder. It was a high-grade urothelial cancer, very deadly. They took out my bladder, prostate, cleaned out my urinary system, told me that um, we'll know after pathology gets back whether or not you're going to live because if the cancer's outside of that area, I would live about six months. This is one of the best guys in the nation for this cancer. So as I was at Sloan Kettering with a large incision, recovering for 17 days, God spoke to me. And when God speaks to me, I hear him in my heart, in my spirit, my mind. And he said, I want you to be transparent about this journey. And I thought, I don't even know if I'm going to live. Never mind, be transparent about this, about this journey. And so as I look back on that time, and I look back on 2015, 10 years after that, just a year before I was sitting, I'm, a year after I was sitting in the therapist's office, uh, the cancer was so bad, I had three surgeons working on me at Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan for 10 hours. They got done with the surgery and they said, this is the most unique surgery we've done in urology. They said, we don't know um, if you're going to live. The cancer was, was outside of the area. It was wrapped around your aorta. There was a lot of things going on. So we did the best we could. We closed you up. It was at that point that Sloan spoke to my doctor and said, tell him to go home and call hospice because he's not going to live long. Again, that was 2015. In 2017, I was in a hospital in New York. I had tumors all inside of my urinary system, one the size of a tennis ball and outside the area, my pelvic area. And the doctors once again said, just send him home and have him call hospice. That's it. And yet here I am today. So it's amazing as I look back and see the tapestry that God is weaving in my life and to actually see a book that he has done through me, I am just amazed at what he, he can do. But in 2014, sitting in that therapist's office with what was going on, um, we started to get some marital counseling. And the counselor that I was working with was a Celebrate Recovery pastor. It's a woman. And she did a personality test on me. And, um, and she started to drill down into my life doing a step four inventory. I didn't know what the 12 steps were. My daughter had used them when she was in uh, drug addiction, rehab. But I didn't, I didn't think the 12 steps applied to me. And she started to do what's called the fearless and moral inventory, which is step four in the 12 steps. And I was like, I don't need this. The problem's not me, it's her. The problem is them over there. I was in the blame game. And the blame game is wonderful because you can shift responsibility from yourself to somebody else. You don't have to own it. And yet God was holding me to the fire saying, I want you to look at the mirror and see what's going on in your life. I want you to humble yourself. I want you to be honest and transparent and authentic with another person. I was an elder in my church. I'm a Christian college grad, a Christian law school grad. I was the picture of Christendom. I had grown up in the evangelical church at that point. 
I, was, uh, I, I had been a Christian for 42 years. I was in the who's who of evangelical people. Kidding. Um, but here I was. What I had been doing as a father, I have six children, as a husband, as an attorney, as a leader in my church, as I had been showing the people just what the tip above the water of the iceberg. When I walked into church, I showed everyone what was above the water. I didn't show them what was beneath the water. And it was because I didn't have a place where I could share that. I didn't feel safe. So in that therapist's office, I got safe. And uh, she told me, which no one else would have been willing to do, but she said, you're a screwed up guy. And I said, okay, what can we do about that? And, if I, and when I lead Celebrate Recovery, which meets every Thursday night in my church, I stand up and say, I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I struggle with codependency, which for me looks like getting my value and worth from other people. I, I try to get value from, my, from performance, from recognition. Lord, not from you, but from all these other things, from broken humanity I'm trying to get my value, which never works, by the way. And Lord, I have resentment and unforgiveness and bitterness. I have some unhealthy coping mechanisms. Lord, and I am a mess. I give excuses. I, don't, I rationalize. I don't look at myself. I have anger, Lord. I have underlying anger. And so it was in the context of Celebrate Recovery, a 12-step program, that I finally got honest with myself. And I entered into a place where I did this inventory, and then I did a step, a step study with other men in my church, which is going through the 12 steps and being honest and transparent with each other. You know, the scripture says in James 5.16, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And yet most of us, we don't have a safe person or a safe place where we can do that. My encouragement to you this, this morning, if you want to do this journey, I call it getting the rubble out of my life getting the rubble out of my connection with, with Jesus. It's probably the most significant journey I've taken besides salvation in my life, was to finally get honest with God, myself, and others. But it does require a safe person and a safe place. Um, and so from that journey, uh, and starting in 2014, I, I became involved in Celebrate Recovery in my church, and then uh, now I am the ministry leader for it. We have roughly 60 people that come out every Thursday night. Right now we have about 70 people working the 12 steps. So accepting hardship as a pathway to peace has been something that I've sought after. Acceptance, one time I was in my, I run the cancer support group at my church and I asked the other cancer people who were there, what's the most important quality that you can say that's helping you get through your journey, your cancer journey. And they all said the same thing, acceptance. How do I get to that place where I can accept things in my life that I have no control over? You know, we have an illusion of control in our lives. We think we're in control of a lot of things. I got down to the point through my five years of being in recovery that the only thing I have control over is how I'm going to respond to a situation. I don't have control over any of the people in my life, the things, the places, nothing. Just how I'm going to respond. And so, Lord, when things come into my life, when you've allowed things to happen, and that's a whole other discussion about when things happen in our lives outside of our control that are bad, like cancer, does that mean God stopped loving us? 
and yet you read the scriptures and Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. I don't know if you remember that. But he had a revelation of heaven. You know, there's people out there that are having near-death experiences and I don't know what you think about that. But Paul had one. Paul was transported to heaven and he said 14 years ago, that's what the scripture says, I don't know if I was in the body or out, but I went up to heaven and I heard things and saw things that I can't even tell you about because I don't even know how to voice it. And then, and then the scripture goes on to say that so he would not become prideful, that God sent a messenger from Satan. Imagine that. Our Lord who is love, he is love. He doesn't exhibit love, he is love. He allowed a messenger from Satan to be sent to Paul. And because the Lord, and Paul prayed three times for it to be removed, that thorn in the flesh. And God said no each time. He said, because when you're weak, I'm strong in you. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. There have been so many times that I said, Lord, I want to get the cancer in my rearview mirror. It's always in my front window, and I don't want to see it there anymore. And each time he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Surrender and trust, surrender and trust. In Luke 8, there's this wonderful story where, where Jesus and his 12 disciples are done with a day of ministry. They get down to the, to the Sea of Galilee. They jump in a boat. Jesus says, go to the other side. Jesus knows what's going to happen. They start to proceed to the other side of the sea, and there's a huge storm arises, and he goes to sleep in the boat. You probably remember this, this story. So what do the men do? Do the men wake up Jesus? No. No, they don't want to wake him up. So you can imagine, these, a lot of these men know how to navigate the sea. They've grown up along the sea. Some of them are fishermen, so they know what they're doing. But the storm is so bad that they think they're going to die. So bad, screaming out, I think we're going to perish. We're not going to survive this storm. You can imagine them rowing faster, bailing out the water, doing whatever is within their own power to get through this storm. And I think about myself resorting to anxiety and fear and anger and resentment over this cancer journey. I don't want to go, I didn't want to go to Lower Manhattan five days in a row for five weeks this summer and get radiation treatment every day. I didn't want to do that. Lord, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And yet when these 12 men woke up Jesus in the boat, what does he do? He goes to the front of the boat. He says, calm, peace, be still. The wind and the waves obeyed him. And then he looks back at his 12 disciples and he said, where is your faith? Or where is your trust? That speaks to me. When I'm in a doctor's office or cancer center in fusion, I have to get an infusion this next week. On Thursday, I go into the chemo unit. They, they do a drip. And my, I meet with my oncologist. I get, I get blood work done. None of it's pleasant. Cancer center equals pain and suffering and death. People in there are not on a journey of pleasantness. Very difficult to get through that. And I know that if I wake up Jesus and say to him, okay, Lord, I'm going to focus on you. Even though the storm around me is raging, I'm going to focus on you. And you know, faith is one of those interesting concepts in Scripture. It's a huge one, but I'm just going to mention a couple things about, about that because there's one example in scripture that really just speaks to me, and it is of the Roman centurion. I don't know if you remember that. There's two times Jesus said, 
Never have I seen such faith in Israel. I'm amazed at this faith. And he is, the Roman centurion goes to Jesus. He's an officer and he says to him, uh, Jesus, can you heal my servant who's home? But he says to him, you don't have to go there because I'm a man under authority, so I understand authority. I understand what that means. And he's saying to Jesus, you are the final authority. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to surrender to you. And Jesus said, never have I found such faith in Israel, which must have ticked off the Jews, because he was a Gentile. He did that with the other twice too. They were both Gentiles when he said that. And then Jesus elsewhere said, you don't need much of a faith. He said, you need the faith of a grain of a mustard seed, and you can say to this mulberry tree, be thrown into the sea, and it will be done for you. So it's about, there's this peace in all this, this, this space where we talk about surrender and trust. That's been my mantra for, fit for the past 15 years, surrender and trust. When I went home in 2017, I wrote a letter to each one of my children. I have six children, and I, it took me a week to write one letter because it was a goodbye letter. It was a letter saying, this is what I felt about you when you were born. This is what, how I feel about you now. This is where I see you on your journey, and this is a little piece of me that I want you to remember me by. I started to record YouTube videos, and it got, I got to the point where I said, you know what? I think the message of my heart that God has given me is I can't, but Jesus can. I can't, but Jesus can. And I got into this place of surrender and trust. Lord, what does it mean for me to surrender this cancer journey to you and trust you in it? And for me, surrender means to give God authority over that particular area. So, for instance, in the cancer space, it means, Lord, I surrender my health, my life, and, my, and this cancer journey to you. Do I have to make decisions within that space? Yes. What hospitals am I going to go to? What doctors? What treatment? I'm always conferring back and forth with my doctors because I'm an anomaly. My doctors in New York City say you should not be alive. My doctor just last week was over in Europe. He had videotaped my insides and he was presenting it to 200 medical professionals in Amsterdam, then he was going to Berlin, and he was talking about my case. He said, the, the, my, my surgeon is a world leader in what he does. So he's over there talking about this, this case. And it's like, can I really surrender this journey to you, Lord? There are decisions to be made, but I'm going to look to the Lord to direct me. Lord, what doctor do I use? What hospital do I go to? Do I do this new, brand new immunotherapy treatment? But I look to him. I've surrendered it to him, this journey, just like every other area of my life. Do I take things back at time? Of course. Do I struggle with who's in control? Of course. That's a daily struggle for me. So it's a daily surrender to him. And trust can you really trust Jesus? Who is Jesus in your life? I had to get to the point where I said, Lord, I trust you with my life. I was in the hospital four days, 2017, with tumors all throughout, and I said, Lord, I trust you with my life. If you're going to take me, then, then partner with me. Let's go. You know, we talk a lot about that we have life after death, which is an absolute truth, but when you're faced with it, it's a whole nother thing.
But I said, yes, Lord, I am ready to go. Three months, they started a brand new immunotherapy drug on me, which had just been approved six months earlier by the FDA. And, they, and my doctor, my Sloan doctor said, just send him home. But my world leader doctor, he won't give up on me. In fact, part of my book, I just thank him. I said, here's a doctor that won't give up on me. And he started a brand new immunotherapy drug, just approved. He was in three months. He did a cystoscopy on me, which is a scope to look inside the urinary system. And the tumor that was a tennis ball had been shrunken down to a golf ball. And we're like, whoa, what's going on here? He's like, I don't know. I haven't seen this kind of thing. Then three months after that, he went in and it was gone. He flew back in the room. And I was like, slow down, because there's a scope inside of me. He, <laughs> he flew back in the room. And I said, immunotherapy? He goes, immunotherapy, nothing. This is God. Now, this is a world leader doctor. And he said, this is God. This is a miracle. And so how was I to know in 2005, 2015, 2017 that God was going to do this? I didn't. But I trust. I try. It's hard to trust Jesus with everything, isn't it? Hard to trust him with our finances, our relationships. Hard to trust him with what's going on in our lives. And so I'm going to, I don't know how much time I've gone. Am I okay? All right, so I'm just going to say something that has been a key concept for me, and it's what I mentioned before. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word blessed in the Aramaic means blissful. In the Greek, it's happy. Makarios says, I probably am saying that wrong. Pastor Ryan or Keith will uh, correct me after, I'm sure. But it's the concept is this word of just, you know, like I like the sort of the utter bliss. And you can imagine, blissful are the poor in spirit. That just doesn't sound right. <laughs> For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is just this huge concept that Jesus introduces. When he came, he ushered in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to use it right now to say this, that the kingdom of heaven is about getting the rubble out of your life. It's about getting more connected with Jesus in your relationship with him. It's about emotional and spiritual maturity. It's about arriving at that place where you can say, okay, Jesus, I truly do trust in you. It's really about you, not about me. I can't, Lord, but you can. And so that poverty and spirit word, as Jesus was giving it, it really harkens back to when he stood up in Nazareth and he read from the scroll. And it said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. In other words, I like to say Jesus is a chain breaker. He wants to break those chains in our, in our lives. He wants to enter into those broken spaces and those broken places. You know, I, I used to say, yeah, I've given my life to the Lord, and yet there were closets and things I didn't want him to enter into. There were places I didn't want to give to him. I didn't want to surrender those places to him. I wanted to hold on to him. And so this concept of poor in spirit, really, it also can be used, uh, the same word as brokenness. And I love the story of King David because he is a man after God's own heart who allowed a certain story to be recorded in Scripture forever. He, couldn't, he could have stopped it, but he didn't. And he's on the rooftop, and he sees a naked woman bathing, and you know what happened? He had a relationship with her. A son was conceived. 
there was a problem, though, because that woman was married, in fact, married to Uriah the Hittite, who was one of his really faithful, loyal army men, and he had Uriah the Hittite killed up at the front line. He told, put Uriah in the front and pull back, men, so he can be killed. He tried to get Uriah away to have to, so that he could cover it up and have him um, go with his wife Bathsheba, but he wouldn't leave. Uriah was so loyal to David. And when this whole thing was done, and Nathan the prophet went to him and care-fronted him, rebuked him. How do you rebuke the king? He did it because God had told him to go and do that. David repented. And when he repents, he says this, you don't delight in sacrifice, this is from Psalm 51, or I would bring it, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. In CR Celebrate Recovery, we're constantly doing inventories. We do what's step 10 is what's called a daily inventory. But in order to walk through those doors, if anyone knows step one of the 12 steps, it's about recognizing that you're powerless and your life is unmanageable. I love step two. It says that we need a higher power. For us, it's Jesus Christ. And step three is about turning our life and our will. That's hard to turn your will over to your higher power, Jesus Christ. And then step four is to take a look inside. The man in the mirror is what I like to call it. I never wanted to look at myself in honesty. Step five is about confessing your sins to God, yourself, and somebody else. But within that brokenness, that place where you recognize that you have rubble, that you have character defects, you have sins, and you're going to own that, and you're going to come to the Lord. The thing we emphasize in CR is that he is not a condemning and judging God. He does not lord over you and say, you're, I'm going to condemn you for what you've done. That's not who he is. We know that from the scriptures, you just have to read the scripture. Jesus is a chain breaker. Jesus said, I came that you might have life abundantly. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. To me, an abundant life means that no matter what's going on in my life, whether it's cancer, whether it's failed relationships, whether it's addiction, overdoses, whether it's financial problems, no matter what's going on in my life, I want it to be an abundant life. And that's possible because of what God can do. God can invade our circumstances like I said, so many times I've said to the Lord, I want cancer to be in my rearview mirror. And that hasn't happened. I've seen miracles of healing in my body, which have been amazing. But I continue on in this journey. In 2015, after that long surgery I mentioned for 10 hours, I wanted to die. I said, that's it, Lord. This is it. This is my 14th surgery. I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm done. My son who was there, I couldn't talk to anyone. I, I didn't want any guests. My son, Paul, read scriptures and played hymns for me because I couldn't respond to anything. I was in ICU for about six days, and he was there with me that whole time. I said, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do it anymore. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, I am spent. I'm done. And the Holy Spirit invaded me. What happened was a friend of mine 
got down on his knees and said, what can I do for Peter? Because he texted me, he said, how's it going? I said, it's dark and getting darker, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of this, and I, I don't like Jesus right now. I'm in pain. Terrible. This is the worst night of my life. I call it the dark night of my soul. It's in my book where I really describe it. And he, he said he asked the Lord what to do. He came down with a blank journal, put the journal on my chest. I said, I don't want any visitors, and what is this? And he said the Lord told him that I needed to write down my feelings. So about four days after that, I picked up that journal and I began to record what was going on. And he gave me 23 truths, truths that I wrote down over about three weeks. They were things like, for God works all things out for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. Death nor life anything on this earth, anything above, uh, above this earth, Jesus will love me no matter what. Nothing can separate me from that. That God had a purpose and a plan and what was happening to me was huge. I studied Job. I studied Paul. Job is a, just a fascinating book. What's going on in that book, it's amazing. Job doesn't get to see that God and Satan are having this ex exchange. And God's the one that said, have you considered my servant Job? And then he gives permission to Job. When you give your life to the Lord, he's sovereign over your life. He owns you. If you think you're going to run away from the Lord, think again. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can make decisions that are destructive like the prodigal son. But he's going to be after you. You know, you have, you have the Lord of the universe living in you. And so, in the, in the context of, of what was going on, especially like, I love that prodigal son story, where the prodigal son just makes one destructive choice after another, and I said, that's me, that's me. He convinces his dad, give me half of my inheritance, which was unheard of, give me half of your Give me half of your inheritance. Give me my whole inheritance. And I'm sure the father just said, go ahead. Take it. I'm tired of hearing you. As a parent, you can understand that one. Go ahead. Go figure it out. I'm letting go of you. I had to do that with my daughter a couple times. Tough love. Go ahead. Go. And he did. The prodigal son took off. And he spends all his money on wine, women, and song. Ends up in a pig farm. Because there's a famine in the land. And he's a Jew at a pig farm. And he's so desperate, so hungry, he kneels down to eat from the slop of the pigs, what the pigs are eating. You can imagine the pigs looking over at him with an eyebrow raised, like, what are you doing here eating our food? But, and then that wonderful caption in Scripture comes out that he came to his senses. And that's what it means to have poverty of spirit, is to get clarity on what's going on in your life. And so I... Um, I don't know what, how am I, third? Is it, am I past? Okay, so I'll just, okay, so let me just sum it up. Sorry, sorry. Um, so just to sort of tie in the title to this sermon, um, is just to say that um, where I've received peace in my journey is um, in a place where I can surrender and trust in him and accept what he's doing, what he has allowed to happen 
in my life, and that, has, that I've really come to a place of peace. So thank you so much for having me. You're the first uh, launch of the book tour, which I'm sure will spread across the country really quickly. <laughs> right, Pastor Ryan?